Advice is not a silver bullet. It's that exchange of ideas that gets you thinking. The classic advice we got from Paul Graham was, do things that don't scale. Go out and meet your users. And we're like, we're an internet company. Why do we meet our users? Our best executive hires and employees, too, are, are folks who come into it with a learning mindset. They don't want to come in with their own agenda and go in their own direction. They really want to get on the same page with you and are willing to listen. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. On today's episode, we have Nate Blacharzik, the co-founder of Airbnb, and we recorded this podcast at Airbnb's headquarters. I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. So we're super excited to have Nathan Blacharsik here with us today for our first ever live audience podcast at Founder Real Talk. Nate's one of the three co-founders of Airbnb. As an early internet pioneer, Nate financed much of his way through Harvard, where he graduated with a degree in computer science, via entrepreneurial and programming roles. He coded up the initial Airbnb site, and one of his two co-founders, Brian Chesky, in his own words, about the early days of Airbnb said, Joe and I would have crazy dreams and visions. Nate would find a way to make the wildly impractical possible. Nate served Airbnb in many capacities, including CTO, and these days is chief strategy officer and chairman of China. We'll discuss uh, this varied set of roles with Nate, and uh, please join me in welcoming Nate to Founder Real Talk. Thanks, Nate. So first question for you, you know, you, Brian, and Joe have been together now for quite some time, but going back to the early days when Airbnb was just getting off the ground, how did you guys mesh your skill sets? What did you do well? What did those guys do well? And how did you figure out who was going to be responsible for what? Well, actually, this was one of the premises for working together in the first place was the team because we were living together as roommates in San Francisco before starting the company. And during that time, we each had different jobs, and we had side projects, things that we worked on after work and on the weekends. And so we immediately noticed each other's work ethic. We also noticed that we had complementary skills, and we were helping each other out. Joe and Brian are designers. I'm an engineer. They were helping me to create marketing material, design my sites. I was helping them to build theirs. And so, you know, part of the idea of doing Airbnb was not even so much about Airbnb, but it was the team. Once we got going and the company got running, it kind of all fell into place fairly organically. I would say by being the only engineer, actually my early title in my email footer was all things technical guy. So, you know, of course the engineering, but, you know, anything having to do with data analytics, some of the basic finances in the early, early days. And that's all I really had bandwidth to do. Joe was doing a lot of the visual design, user feedback, customer service, Brian was doing a lot of the external stuff, interviews, fundraising. And I think just looking at our personalities, that has also kind of dictated who does what. I mean, Brian, if there's like one word to describe him, it's bold. You know, he's the guy out there convincing you to go 10x harder. And I think that's what you kind of need in the CEO and the leader. Joe is the uh, perfectionist. You know, he has a tremendous empathy for users and wanting to get it right regardless of how long it takes. And, of course, I'm, I'm the engineer. So you guys were friendly before starting the company together. Do you think that's a positive or a negative for a group of founders to know each other in a context outside of work like that? 
I think it's very good. I would say that starting a company together is like a professional marriage, and you want to go into that eyes open. And so having some context and experience with one another beforehand is really great. I'd also say that during the first year, by the end of the first year, things were not going well. And had it been easy to walk away from each other, we probably would have. But we were definitely in it together. We were friends, and we realized that if any one of us left, you know, the other two would be kind of sunk. And, and nobody wanted to do that to their pals. And so you know, we, I think we stuck through it longer than we otherwise would have. I, I think it helped us a lot. Double-clicking a little bit on that, you guys have been pretty open about the fact that some of the early days were really challenging, right, when growing the business. And what were some examples of some really testing you know, experiences and how and why did you guys you know, move past that and keep going? Well, certainly the hardest thing is basically between when you launch your product, and that's in a very exciting moment. And the build-up to that is also very exciting because you think that's the, the light at the end of the tunnel is like kind of launching. But then you realize <laughs> that that's actually just the start of something that has no end. It's what Paul Graham at Y Combinator, they have a, a fun chart they sometimes draw, and, and it's this period that he calls the trough of sorrows, which is kind of you have this high when you launch, and then immediately you're kind of emotional well-being plummets as you realize that if you build it, they will not come, <laughs> that you will build it, and then you have to go out and find your customers, and that that is a fairly difficult task given how little you matter in the world. And so the most difficult period was that first year when uh, there was no organic traction. And frankly, all even our mentors, I remember one mentor told us, I hope that's not the only thing you're working on. <laughs> and so you know, it's really hard when... Uh, when you just don't have that support. I mean, I do think that's one of the very unique things about Silicon Valley is the community here and where the community, you know, thinks it's totally cool to go off and chase your dreams with very little expectation of how quickly it's going to be successful and a lot of understanding of, of, of kind of the trough of sorrows. I think the way this almost concluded was that at the end of the first year, you know, basically growth had been flat, meaning we were making $200 a week and nothing we did would change that fact. And so that's obviously not a lot of money. And we had been unsuccessful raising any money. And so we were at a point of saying, at what point do you quit? At which point do you say, that's enough. We've tried it. It's time to move on. And so we had that conversation. We said, we've been working really hard on this, but we actually haven't yet given it 100%. Because the truth is, we each had some side projects going on. And uh, at the time, I was living in Boston. They were out here. And we just, I don't think we're firing on all cylinders. And we also at this time got some advice that why don't you do Y Combinator? It will really bring kind of a lot of focus and kind of discipline to your kind of execution. And so we made a pact with each other. We said, we'll give it 13 more weeks. That's the length of Y Combinator. And if things aren't materially better after 13 weeks, after we've given 100% as part of Y Combinator, we will walk away from this and feel like we haven't let each other down and feel like we've given it our best. Now, luckily, we never had to have that conversation at the end of Y Combinator because Shortly uh, thereafter, during Y Combinator, due to a bunch of insights, uh, the business did start to grow. Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about getting the business going. You guys are a marketplace business, and our experience is it's really tough to get a marketplace going, right? You need liquidity for marketplaces to work. And once you get liquidity, they're very powerful. But boy, it's tough in the early days to get both sides of the marketplace going. You personally, Nate, are credited with a lot of the early hacks and creative things and innovations you created to get the marketplace going. Can you talk a little bit about what that process was like, when things didn't work, how you knew when to cut them off, 
and um, you know how some of that creative spark got rolling for you? I think when we first, shortly after we first launched, and we were kind of in a panic that we had no growth, there's a little bit of a scramble to basically do all the common stuff without maybe a lot of deliberate thinking through the strategy. And so the immediate things that came to mind was, you know, let's create a coupon program. Let's create an affiliate program. And I'd say at that point, we didn't even have product market fit. And so, you know, if you're trying to drive growth and you don't have product market fit, that's not, not right. I would say shortly thereafter, and, and this is really what happened during Y Combinator, we had kind of a realization that the quality of our product, meaning the actual homes, we could actually do a lot more. In other words, we had previously been of the mindset of we're an internet company, we do things that scale, therefore we don't get our hands dirty by doing things that don't scale. And the classic advice we got from Paul Graham was do things that don't scale, go out and meet your users. And we're like, we're an internet company, why do we meet our users? Mm-hmm. I mean, we were very naive at the time. But to get product market fit, all this is very important. So we went to New York and uh, we basically photographed all the properties ourselves. So they had high quality pictures. We built relationships with the hosts. We, in other words, we sat down at the computer with them, got product feedback, invited them out for beers, told them our story, built rapport and trust. And once they wanted us to succeed, you could actually ask them to do more for you. You could ask them to lower their prices. You could help them to write their profile. So you could actually really curate the quality of the supply. Now, I think there's also another kind of important attribute of our business model, which is on the supply side, the supply is specific to a geography, which is challenging because you have to build adequate supply in all these different places. But there's a large lifespan to the supply. In other words, there's a lot of businesses where like an auction, for example, where this thing is only on the site for a short period of time and you have to like drive the demand inside of a day or a few hours to kind of make that spark happen. And for us, we realized that if we have a really good piece of supply, it could sit on the site for one or two months and never get any inquiry. But if suddenly that host gets an email saying somebody wants to stay with you from Sweden and pay you $500, you know, that's going to re-engage you instantly. And so actually that took a lot of the pressure off where we said, okay, let's build up a minimum base of supply that's high quality. Let's not sweat about, uh, worry too much about the demand. And so that's what we did. We built the supply. But inevitably, then the question became how to get the demand. You know, in that case, you go fishing where the fish are. And back then, the place people went to find alternative accommodation in a place like New York um, or anywhere in the U.S. was Craigslist. Craigslist was kind of is, is, you know, a classified site uh, where all kinds of kind of informal things get bought and sold. And so there are a lot of eyeballs there. And, you know, it's relatively not specialized, which is kind of their weakness. And we basically created a tool that allowed hosts to easily repost their profiles into Craigslist as a classifieds ad and basically then link back to their Airbnb profile. So in other words, the guests would ultimately become Airbnb customers, pay on Airbnb. But this is how we wired up the early demand side of the equation uh, and got some traction going. Later on, we started to scale all this by doing things like Google AdWords and Facebook ads to drive both supply and demand and start doing this more on a global scale. And we got really good at, you know, managing our ad spends, being hyper-local, choosing the keywords carefully. Because another learning was, you're like, okay, this is really easy. Go to AdWords and buy customers, right? Well, actually, it takes a lot of discipline to create a high ROI campaign. And so in those early days, we lost a ton of money on Google because we hadn't optimized it well enough. And and so we didn't really budget necessarily how much that was going to cost us over the first few months. 
Going back to the Y Combinator experience, um, so two questions. One, you know, at the time, certainly the Airbnb idea wasn't so obvious. So, you know, why did they decide to accept you guys and work with you? And secondly, you mentioned that there were some, you know, special insights that you got during Y Combinator that really changed like the destiny of the business, right? So what were some of those? So this is a pretty funny story, but it requires telling another story about the serial. (laughs) So let me tell you uh, the lead up story. We launched in August of 2008 at the Democratic National Convention, where Barack Obama received the nomination of his party. Uh, Historic event, made a lot of sense to launch there because there wasn't enough places to stay. We got a lot of press, uh, too, because there's a lot of coverage of this event, uh, and people were looking to do interesting angles. And and, and through that, we met a lot of political reporters. Now, fast forward about a month, and we have no business whatsoever. And we're thinking about, okay— how can we leverage our learnings from that event to kind of recreate that success? So we have like 100 political reporters that had kind of reached out to us. We said, okay, how can we create a story that they would want to write about again? And so somehow, Joe and Brian got this pretty wacky idea to create a presidentially themed breakfast cereal. Because at the time, our company name was Air Bed and Breakfast, not Airbnb, but Air Bed and Breakfast. So it's a play off our name, Breakfast, created a presidentially themed breakfast cereal. They came up with this concept called uh, Obama O's. And Captain McCain's, John McCain was the other candidate that year. And they were quite clever. They created all original artwork for the boxes, really witty kind of subtext. We actually built the boxes, got them printed, built them up, stuffed them with cereal. And the idea was that we were going to send the first 100 boxes of each to political reporters. And the idea was if they get this in the mail, they're going to have to call us back and ask us about it and invite us on our program because this is the lead up to the election. And so we know all these political reporters are talking about the election and kind of the, you know, all the excitement to the election. So that was the strategy. The other strategy was for the other 400 boxes of each cereal that we had, we would sell them on our website for $40 a box. So anyways, we mail off the 100 of each. And sure enough, within a week, we're on Good Morning America talking about the cereal and talking about the company. We're also on CNN International talking about the cereal. And that day, we became the number one political video of the day uh, <laughs> on the CNN homepage. Sold a $40 box of cereal every three minutes. Within a few days, we sold out of Obama's. We never sold out of Captain McCain, so we <laughs> predicted the election. But we made $30,000 in a week, which is more money than we had made the entire year on our core business. So we like to joke that we funded the business through selling cereal the first year. Um, We've heard of ramen profitable, but never the cereal profitable. <laughs> yeah, for a moment, we thought we should be a cereal company. It's far more profitable. Anyways, now fast forward to Y Combinator. And we have our meeting with Paul Graham and the, the other uh, founders. And it's, I think, about a four-minute meeting is how long you have to basically pitch your idea. So you're in and out. And so we go in there. And within about a minute and a half or two minutes, Paul Graham says, what? People do this? I would never do this. And he basically then pivots the conversation to try to convince us to create a payments platform, kind of similar to Stripe. And so four minutes then expires. And he's like, OK, time's up. Time to go. And we were feeling pretty bad because we, the conversation totally went off the tracks. And it was clear he didn't have much interest. And as we're walking out, Joe takes out of his bag a box of the Obama-O's. <laughs> and he gives it to Paul Graham. And Paul says, what's this? Did you get me a gift? And Joe says, no, we made this. And he says, uh, I don't understand. Come back in and tell me about your cereal. <laughs> so we, we told him this whole crazy story about how we hustled and built cereal boxes and, and, and funded our company this way. And he later told us that he funded us because of that story. He said, that story illustrated to me that you guys were super scrappy hustlers, that 
in the basically throes of a recession, which we had now entered into, could survive what he called a nuclear winter. And so he, he also referred to that as, as being a cockroach. So he said, that's what I was looking for. And that story illustrated it. So that's why he accepted us, not because he liked Airbnb. So a key question would be, if Joe had given PG a box of the Captain McCain's, would the, would the decision have been the same? Well, I'll tell you what. I actually was not supportive of bringing the cereal because I saw as we were leaving the apartment, Joe put the cereal in his bag. <laughs> and I, I, I famously told Joe, I was like, Joe, don't bring that with us. That will embarrass us. I got to be honest. At the time, I was not supportive of the idea. You know, as the engineer, I thought my two design friends had uh, totally just gone off the wall when they told me <laughs> that they wanted to frankly spend two months I mean, that's a big distraction. Two months creating a cereal to generate press that had nothing to do with our business. Uh, this was total craziness for me. Uh, and so to me, that's what the cereal represented. But it also, it also represented something else. That's great. And how about some of the positive lessons that came out of Y Combinator? Would you recommend? It sounds like it was a really formative experience for you guys. And do you think other founders that have that opportunity, is it, is it all it's cracked up to be? Yeah, I mean, we had a, a great experience with Y Combinator. Um, it, it changed everything for us. And I'd say, you know, more generally, having a community and active mentorship is so critical, someone that you can bounce ideas off of. I mean, for us in Y Combinator, we made a point to always get time with Paul Graham and really have that dialogue and exchange of ideas and back and forth. You know, I'd say advice is not a silver bullet. It's never the case that someone gives you advice and it's as simple as that and, and you take it for face value. We got a lot of advice we threw away, but it's that exchange of ideas that gets you thinking. And so the key things were, you know, really kind of do things that don't scale, meet your users. That made a big difference for us. Also about how we position a company. At the time, we positioned ourselves as the eBay for space. That's an idea that Paul came up with. Uh, and it really helped to recast how we told our stories to investors. It's cool. So we first met in early 2010, shortly after you guys finished uh, your YC program, and you guys are raising a, a financing round. And at the time, I think South by Southwest had maybe just occurred, and I think you guys had had some good success at South by Southwest. And I know the company has had success at like global events, World Cups, Olympics, et cetera, inaugurations, that sort of thing. Why do you think that's worked well for you guys? as an example of a way to get a marketplace going? And um, what have been some of the challenges you've faced as you've tried to, you know, glom on to big global events as a way to grow the business? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because that's another uh, example of like growth hacks, basically. You know, events are a great catalyst for us for two reasons. One, a big event attracts a lot of people to one area. Typically, hotel prices go up. Oftentimes, there's not enough places to stay. And so there's a real consumer need on the demand side. There's just plenty of people who want to come but can't afford it or can't find a place to stay. Even on the supply side, I would say that local residents know that there's a big event happening. And to them, it kind of answers the why now question. You know, as a host, you hear this kind of wacky idea or a prospective host, and you hear this wacky idea, and there's no kind of like, why should I do this now? But something like South by Southwest is like, okay, I have two weeks before the event. If I want to do this, now is the time to try it. And so these events are great catalysts for bringing a lot of supply and demand into the marketplace. So that's one thing that helps us. The second thing is these events usually track a lot of media buildup, a lot of people writing stories about the event coming to town. And so it's a very natural way for you to get press coverage because you can, you know, you see who's writing about these stories, about these events, 
and you can email the reporter and basically say, here's what we're seeing on our site related to this event. Here's how we're helping people come. And you can easily feature kind of like user testimonials about interesting people. So it's also kind of a PR hack too. With PR press, you know, one saying is, don't create your own wave. Don't try to create a wave yourself. That's really hard to do. Ride someone else's wave. And so these events were very predictable waves. You know that an event's coming a year in advance. You know people are going to be writing about it. And so you can really get a lot of press coverage in addition to bootstrapping demand and supply. The challenge, of course, is there's not enough big events happening where you need them all the time. But I would say it's how we launched a company with the Democrat National Convention, August 2008. In the early days, it was quite instrumental to bootstrapping new markets. And even today, you know, we are a partner with the Olympics for the last two Olympics the official alternative accommodation provider, you know, World Cup also is a big deal for us. And so it continues to be an important way to generate publicity for the company. So Airbnb has done a really great job of building up, you know, a very engaged community of people who are really proud to be both hosts and, and guests. Was this something that you really sought out, you know, intentfully to build from day one? Yeah, community building has always been super important to us. I think it really started with the fact when we went to New York and photographed those apartments that we got to know the host. We didn't just breeze in and breeze out and take the pictures. We actually sought product feedback, and we'd always throw a meetup. We'd always invite them out for free beers, and a number of them would take us up on it. And so, you know, over, over some drinks, we'd exchange stories and build relationship, and hosts would get to know each other. And so, you know, those early customers, you'll never forget. And through that, you hear their stories, you understand their motivations, you know, I just think it gives you a deeper level of appreciation for your guests and your hosts and who they are and, and why that matters. And so it was always a big part of our strategy to use that actually to build trust too, because it wasn't just us getting to know our community, but our community getting to know each other. Okay. And so if we were opened up a new city, we'd have, you know, every couple of weeks, a meetup where, you know, for our existing users, we'd buy them free drinks. We'd also encourage them to bring their friends. And so their friends would be hanging out with, you know, maybe even a smaller number of actual users, but they would be overhearing the stories. And the stories are so compelling that it would make everybody who heard the story want to jump in and participate. Because not only was it an opportunity to, for hosts, you know, make a little extra money, but they always met these really cool people in the process and had cool stories to share. Are you guys still doing those meetups in the spirit of doing things that don't scale? <laughs> <laughs> well, the reality of becoming a bigger company is that you do need to do things that scale. Uh, you can still do some things that don't scale, but you do have to streamline. However, we do do that. It is on a more limited basis. And a lot of the community building happens online now, either in our community forums or there's quite a lot of private community forums where people exchange stories and, and do so online. But, uh, you know, when I, in China, for example, we do a lot of community meetups. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, the globality of your business, China being one of the one of the important facets of that piece. So with your business, you know, you've talked a lot about the fact that outbound travel in countries, people bring it back, bring Airbnb and the community feeling they have back to their own countries and then oftentimes end up becoming hosts and building that part of your business as well so that there's, there's real uh, network effects that come from outbound travelers then ultimately bring domestic business to the platform. And as a result, it seems like Airbnb's gotten very global as Silicon Valley startups go, gotten very global very quickly. As founders, is this something you guys encouraged? When did you figure out that this was happening? And what have you done to prompt the move? And how has it changed your role as a founder in the company mm. being something so global? 
So, you know, we're very fortunate that we do have this kind of natural global cross-pollination that happens organically, meaning, for example, in the early days, people from around the world were coming to New York, having positive experiences, going home, and oftentimes the guest becomes a host. And so, you know, very quickly we're seeing hosts popping up in Paris and Berlin. And our approach in the beginning was when we saw a city have what we saw an interesting number of, of early adopters. So, you know, somewhere between anywhere for as low as like 50 hosts to, to 100, you know, we would start going to the market and cultivating it, making trips, taking photos, doing the community meetups. And we had a goal, which was to get a market to what we call a critical mass, which was 300 properties or 100 reviewed properties. Mm. Uh, generally, one third of them would be reviewed relatively quickly. And we found that once you hit that magic number, the conversion rate in the market would improve dramatically. So if a guest came to your site and searched Paris and saw 300 listings or 100 with actual reviews, that that was a compelling enough experience that you could often convert the guest far better than if they come and see only 40 results. And they're like, okay, this is like not a mainstream thing yet. And so that was a magic number for us. And, and we definitely built an operation to do that around the world in, in, in kind of key urban markets. As the company scaled, I think the implication for being so global for the founders has been definitely just having to travel a lot more to accomplish a few things. You know, one is just internally spending time with your team and being hands-on, but you know, two is also getting the story out. I think that press is a really important tool for building your company. We obviously have a very good story, so that helps. But Joe Bryan and I travel the world to this day extensively and will easily do as many as the most is you know, up to 12 interviews in a day. And so, you know, that's a big time investment, especially when you factor in travel. But I think it's really important if you want to be a really visible company that you go out and tell your story, especially if people are willing to listen. I'd also say for government relations, it's also really important to go out there and start meeting those folks and showing up because when you're that young founder from California who's kind of disrupting and causing... From, from the view of a politician in, in Europe, you know, causing some issues in their, their kind of home turf, you know, their initial impression of you from far away is probably not so positive. But if you meet up in person, they realize, hey, okay, this is somebody I can work with. This is someone who I enjoy speaking with. You can build a relationship and start to work through some of these things. Speaking of the travel as chairman of China now, how often are you spending time in China? How, how, how many trips this year? And- I'm basically shooting for one, one per month. That's, a, that's quite a commitment. <laughs> you do get used to it, though, after a while. You do get used to it. And I've cut down on some of the other travel as a result. At GGV, we're used to that China-bound travel. So uh, transitioning a little bit to team building, you know, obviously this is a company with, with three founders. Obviously, at some point, you had to start putting together an exec team. So how did you guys decide what was the right time, who to bring on first, what order, right, of, of roles? Just that whole thought process. Just walk us through it. So... This all happened in the year 2011, and during that year, the company went from starting the year at 40 people and no executives, everybody reported either to Joe Bryan or I, to ending the year at 400 people. And somewhere along that curve, basically everything fell apart, (laughs) Um, you know, because obviously you can't have 400 people report to three people. So we also had no middle management, but we had no leverage, you know, And, and, and at a certain point, that becomes a huge problem. And also the gravitas of the problems we were starting to deal with that year were just huge. And so, you know, I think we actually were a little bit late in, in building the team and a little bit, 
kind of in crisis mode as we did so. Part of the reason it took so long is because, you know, we have always been cautious about hiring. Before we hired even our first employee, we came up with core values. And so preserving the culture was important. And we thought, you know, an executive is going to have disproportionate impact on the culture. And, you know, frankly, a lot of executives had a little bit of a different fit profile than our individual contributors who happen to be generally very young like us, super passionate, but not necessarily very experienced. And when you talk to executives, you know, they have a lot of experience, but, you know, because of their professional career, they haven't had the same time recently to kind of, you know, just be a travel junkie or, you know, whatever it might be. And so getting that comfort level and and getting used to what to look for an executive definitely took a while to feel out. You had to kind of meet a lot of executives before you felt comfortable hiring one. Once we did hire our first couple of executives, the, the thing that we had to change was, you know, having executive meetings, meaning like how do you empower your executives with the information and create a communication cadence where they know what they need to from you, you know what you need to from them, you're creating visibility, and how do you run an effective kind of what we call e-staff meeting, which I think there's no magic recipe to. I think even to this day, we continue to change the format of our, our e-staff meetings. But I'd say when you're doing it for the first time, you know, these are the kind of unnatural things where you realize when you're not all sitting around the same table, you actually have to create deliberate processes. So let's shift gears and ask you a little bit about the future. If you sketch out where you want Airbnb to be, five, 10 years from now. What does that company look like? Well, this will make you happy. It's a very big company. As a shareholder, that's good. (laughs) Listen, I think that our vision is to create a world where you can belong anywhere. We think that travel is a great way of connecting people and creating belonging. We think we can do that for everyone. And so we're definitely tailoring aspects of our service to different audience segments, uh, whether that be business travelers, luxury travelers, China. We also think that we can be a platform for the entire trip so that in every vertical of travel, not just accommodation, but experience, restaurant, maybe even flight someday, that we can bring our brand and provide something new and differentiated. In other words, as we enter into new verticals of travel, we aren't simply trying to be an OTA where we sell stuff that is already widely available, but we are also trying to bring what I call proprietary, differentiated supply or experiences. And that's frankly very hard and part of the reason why we've gone slow into being a a platform for the entire trip. But it's very much part of the vision. And you see that right now with our launch of experiences, which we launched uh, about a year and a half ago um, and is now growing quite robustly. But it took a long time to develop that unique concept. But now we have something that I think is going to be very enduring. In other words, because it's differentiated, because no one else has it, I think that builds a much stronger company in the long term than if we approach this as a more traditional OTA. So definitely not become just an OTA, but definitely expand into all the offerings of an OTA, but still do it in our, our unique way. Great. With that unique Airbnb flair. That'd be awesome. Well, we look forward to it as shareholders. So we're going to end now with our quick fire round. Uh, we're going to ask you a couple of quick questions and just say the first thing that comes in your head. And let's let's do just a minute or two per question. So First question for you. Without naming names, who has been one of your best hires ever and why was this person so impactful? I'll talk about Belinda, who we just named COO and who was actually our first executive hire. What we love about Belinda is that, you know, she approaches everything with a can-do attitude and from a problem-solving perspective. And she started out being our general counsel and lawyer, basically, which, you know, typically you don't think of as 
they're usually they tell you what you can't do, not what you can do. And she's been an amazing business partner because she always starts with, okay, yes, we can do that, but here's how we do this, you know, in the safest manner kind of possible uh, or the, the most right. And I think, you know, our best executive hires and employees too are, are folks who come into it with a learning mindset. You know, they want to be students. They don't want to kind of come in with their own agenda and go in their own direction. They really want to get on the same page with you and, and are willing to listen. I think capacity for listening is super important and a very easy thing to kind of test for. Great. Let's ask about the coolest place you've ever stayed on Airbnb. The, the coolest, most memorable stories are always, for me, when you stay with an actual host. Um, yeah. And so I, I always love it when I do that because it comes away with a story. So in Maui, I stayed with a host. And this guy, he had been in a rock band, knew the Dalai Lama, had a couple of different passports, had a house in Bali, you know, just super eclectic dude. And Saturday morning, he did a jam session in his living room for us because he's also now a music teacher. He knew all the cool snorkeling spots and gave us his gear. And he took us to some of his favorite spots, one of which was this hole-in-the-wall fish place in a shopping mall. And he said, this is my favorite spot. I go here all the time. So two years later, I'm in Maui. And I, every time I go to Maui, I go to the same spot. And so two years later, I go to the same spot. And I bump into him there. <laughs> so you know, sure enough, he, he does go there every day. Um, he wasn't exaggerating. So anyways, like, uh, you, know, you can meet some real interesting people uh, that you'll never forget. And, and that's one example. Great example of the community of Airbnb. Well, Nate, thanks so much for your time. This has been a great, uh, fantastic session and really appreciate it. Thanks, Glenn. Thanks, Crystal. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.